I'm very excited about today's morning show conversation as I sit across the table from a faculty colleague from Carthage, uh, Jackie Easley, who is Dean for the Division of Professional Studies and Associate Professor of Education. And uh, those of you who subscribe to the Kenosha News perhaps saw a recent series of articles that she wrote in which she touches on the important matter of literacy, and in particular, things that parents and guardians and grandparents and so on can do to help foster literacy habits uh, in young people, uh, as young as toddlers and preschoolers. <laughs> And, uh, and the ways in which we can also try to sort of sustain those habits, especially through the summer months, when at least in most cases, uh, young people are no longer uh, at school or nursery school and maybe not working within certain frameworks in which a lot of reading occurs and so on. And uh, it's a time when uh, a lot of those habits can kind of go by the wayside. And uh, she has some really intriguing ideas on uh, on what people can do to make the summer months uh, very, very rich and meaningful and beneficial uh, when it comes to something as important as literacy. So I'm very excited about this opportunity to uh, explore some of this and more uh, with our guest today. Professor Jackie Easley, we welcome you to the morning show. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks I'm for having me. So happy that we can uh, have this uh, conversation. Since this is your first visit to the morning show, I think it would be Good for our listeners to find out a little bit about you, uh, where you are sure. from originally, uh, first of all, and maybe a little bit about kind of the path that almost all ultimately took you to what you do today. Sure. Um, well, I am originally born and raised in Chicago on the um, northwest side. Uh, Went to Chicago Public School for elementary school and um, always loved school. And I think I always wanted to teach as a young person, probably if I look back on it, because that's really the profession I was exposed to for women, right? Mm. They were mostly women in the classroom. And so I always saw myself as someone who would like to do that. I'm a first-generation college student, so my, I didn't have parents that were saying, well, here's what you should do in school mm. um, kind of thing. So it was more just my own development. In fact, my... My earliest memory of thinking about, even about college was in fourth grade after my birthday when my mom walked my sister and brother and me up to the local savings and loan with our birthday money. And we opened an account, and as she's handing us our passbook, said, and if you want to go to college, start saving your money. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, it wasn't that we weren't encouraged, but it was just something that wasn't the norm. Right. So um, when I started college, though, I thought, I'm one of the first generation of women who could do anything. Why would I want to teach? Mm. And then I was a, a commercial art major and marketing, and one day it just hit me, you know, I just really want to teach. Why mm. am I denying this? And so from then on, I've just always been passionate about education and uh, impacting children. What kind of teaching did you do before eventually uh, coming to Carthage? Mostly um, first, second, third, fourth grades. I taught in... Uh, parochial schools in, in around the Chicago area and also in Eau Claire. Hmm. Um, so, yes, those, that's most of my teaching experience before. At what point did it start to make sense to you that you might want to 
teach teachers rather than <laughs> teaching children. I had a wonderful mentor. I went to Concordia University in Chicago for my undergraduate mm. work. Um, after I decided to teach, I transferred there. And I had a wonderful mentor, Tim Krensky, who um, I went back for my master's in reading education. When I during my first year of teaching, I just saw the power of reading and how it's reading isn't a subject, it's a skill, even though it's taught like a subject. It's part of the day. Mm. And then we have social studies and then we have math. But really, if you can't read, you're not going to really read your social studies book very well. It's a skill you need all day long. All day long. And so I, I saw the power of that. And I decided that's what I wanted to get my master's degree in. And then I went back to Concordia, where I was by then in the Chicago area again. And um, had uh, Tim Krensky was a uh, reading instructor there, and um, he encouraged me to think about it. And so then I decided to go out for my doctorate in reading and realized as much as I enjoy interacting directly with children, I felt I could maybe impact more children by impacting the teachers who would be working with those children. Mm. So wow. that's why I went into that. Ahead of us talking about uh, some of these suggestions you have, I think it would be really interesting to take apart the academic discipline of reading. I don't mean the skill of reading itself, but what it means when one studies reading mm-hmm. and, and the kind of things that one learns and, uh, and the applicability of what you learn in terms of, 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 for instance, the classroom. So when one is getting a master's degree <laughs> and a doctoral degree in reading, what yes. kind of things are you exploring? Sure. So people often say, oh, how nice. Did you just sit and read a lot of books? <laughs> and <laughs> if no, only. <laughs> if only, yeah. Um, so everything from – so if reading were a skill that were taught cookbook style, we probably wouldn't have a lot of struggling readers, right? You do this, then you do this, you mix it together, you're a reader, move on. Mm. And If there so, were a recipe, a yes, straightforward recipe. Right. So – um, it's not. There's many reading theories and instructional theories based on research done into students that have uh, certain programs or certain types of reading methods and what seems to work best. And so there are several different theories that exist. And so learning about how those theories came about is a lot of the coursework. Learning about some of the main researchers and how they're teasing out what makes a student not struggle as much as another student or um, what made students, uh, what do students seem to do to be fluent readers and and it, everything from uh, methods of teaching vocabulary to how to uh, engage children in higher level comprehension to just the basic what's the best way to teach letter sound relationships and uh, all of the research that goes into that. Brain research, how, how print is processed. Hmm. So that's a lot of the work that is involved in those types of courses. Wow. You touch on one matter that I think is really important that would be good for us to just talk about briefly, and that is the fact that there seem to be people among us who simply cannot read or, or who have a supreme amount of difficulty reading. Mm-hmm. And one of the real-life uh, experiences that I'm thinking of for the first time in many years was that I had a classmate back in high school in my small town in Iowa uh, who basically could not read. And this was fairly evident to any of us who were ever in a class with him and sure. so on. 
but I remember once hearing from the mother of a parent of mine who, as I didn't realize this, she actually worked in the school as some kind of tutor or somebody mm-hmm. who worked with, with students who were struggling with reading. And I remember her, when the, the name of this young man came up, I remember her saying, oh, the hours I've spent trying to help so-and-so sure. read and just kind of shaking her head in, in sadness and frustration. And in that moment, I realized that it's not that that right. student X doesn't want to read or doesn't Correct. care about reading or has just been lazy. Mm-hmm. It's it's he wants to read and the person charged with helping him read wants him to read. And yet yeah. there seem to be intractable barriers that are just keeping it from being possible. I know it's impossible to generalize, right. but yes. but what are the kinds of things that are typically at the heart of someone who has serious difficulty with reading? Either oh, it's really difficult to answer that because uh, it could be anything. So it could even be a cognitive uh, disorder that, that the student has. And so reading isn't a one-size-fits-all mm. approach when we're teaching it. And when uh, when you see someone who has a reading specialist degree, that's actually uh, in Wisconsin. That's an administrative degree with uh, post master's work. Mm. And to do that, um, part of their role is to work one on one with other reading teachers and help them with their work, but also with students. And you go through a series of uh, diagnostic testing and then try to sort of I often tell students kind of peeling the layer of the onion, right? Trying Mm. to get at all the different types of uh, pieces of the puzzle that help us to create a full picture of what the student needs. And um, so if if one approach isn't working, then obviously the student isn't mentally geared toward learning in this capacity. Let's look at a different approach. And so it really is uh, unique to each individual that has that profound of a struggle that uh, a teacher with that background would have to really pull the correct diagnostic measures and then start looking at patterns there to see what are some of the approaches that would work best right. with that student. So I suppose in some cases it's it's maybe a problem in the brain in, in terms some of being cases, able to process. In that kind of extreme case from what right. you seem to be describing, it, it sounds, it could be that. Right. And then I suppose in other cases we're talking about something that might be more behavioral in nature, the fact that reading is a relatively quiet uh activity sure, right. that requires a mm-hmm. bit of focus and in a sense patience that yeah. that uh, some young children do not have in abundance and uh, sure. I mean and and that's yeah. just too many there's of, just so many, many extremes yes there's so many like I said it's there's it's not a one size fits all and there's so many decisions that are made every day in any classroom at any time by every teacher about how to approach a text mm. for the students that would be the most effective for them right and of course, on the other end of the spectrum is another uh, example from more recently in my life. I don't mind saying this more specifically. Uh, I have a niece who is an amazing reader, and mm-hmm. she's been so from very, very early childhood. And I know that one of the interesting challenges that, that Lorelai faced, uh, maybe still faces, I'm not sure, is that her level of comprehension was so high. Sure. And yet she was still... I mean, a typical little girl who, so so it was, I think, at certain points really tricky to find books that were, in a sense, 
challenging enough to mm-hmm. her, but still had subject matter that yes, was appropriate. That for is her. so important. And I never stopped to think about that also being again on the kind of the other end of the spectrum. Right. Perhaps an issue A for challenge. certain. Right. Um, that is so important because. I, I talk often with my students about the timing of great literature mm. with our students, and there, and and it can go in both ways. So, as advanced as your niece was, she was still a, a ten-year-old girl at one point with these advanced right. skills and with a ten-year-old mindset and a ten-year-old maturity and life experience. And so, even though they're able to read books like The Firm, <laughs> you know, they're just not. That's not for them. Right. She'd rather read yes. a book about ponies or yes, princesses or exactly, whatever. Exactly. Exactly. And so, um, and the same can be said for children's books. You know, um, sharing great books with children when they're real young, they're only going to get what they're ready to understand from that. They're only going to come away with it. There might be so many more subtle layers of meaning or um, challenging thoughts the author is trying to convey to an older reader. And mm. then when that child is the great the age that that book, any given book, was really geared for, they might say, oh, I read that already. And they're missing that. Mm. So there's a lot to that sort of uh, understanding of when is the right time for a child to read certain books. Right. And I suppose this is when maybe, would it be a school librarian? Yeah. Really comes, uh, is, is, a, is a handy resource yes. and one understands that right. they're not just charged with putting books on the shelf, but also understanding Absolutely. what would what would work well for certain readers. All, all uh, reading teachers have to take children's literature courses. Just, you know, that's part of the reason, right? To know what, what book to put in what hand hmm. at what time. For those of you just joining us, my guest today on The Morning Show is Jackie Easley, who is Dean for the Division of Professional Studies at Carthage and Associate Professor of uh, Education. And by the way, I just want you to say a quick word about what it means to be Dean of the Division of Professional (laughs) Studies, because, I mean, I I know something of what that means, but most of our listeners have no idea. Well, uh, Carthage has three divisions of academic programs, and we have a Division of Natural and Social Science, which houses the departments such as biology, chemistry, math, all the natural and social sciences. And then we have a Division of Arts and Humanities, which houses all of those departments as well. And those are everything from uh, history to um, to studio arts. Music. Music, right. <laughs> absolutely. And then professional studies, I tell people, it's united in its, um, in its purpose mm-hmm. because we have very different subject matter. So we are all the departments that have specific professions embedded in them. Mm. So education, social work, nursing, accounting, finance, marketing management, exercise, sports science. Those are athletic training. Those are the types of departments in my division in professional studies. And the the uh, united purpose there is each department is preparing students who are majoring in them because they see themselves doing that as their specific career. Right. So it's a little less open-ended yeah. uh, than than, than maybe other academic ventures. Although who knows, right. somebody but, can right. Uh, right. choose to Absolutely. do all kinds of other things. But Absolutely, very good. So you're really wearing your hat today, especially as associate professor of education and as someone who, in particular, really cares about reading and about uh, literacy. Uh, so. At what point did it occur to you that the summer months can be kind of, in a sense, a potentially dangerous time for young people in terms of letting some of those things kind of atrophy? Every fall in teaching. (laughs) 
<laughs> no. So, yes, I mean, um, students come back and they've been away for two and a half, three months and having a great time, but maybe not maintaining any of their, uh, many of their literacy skills that they left with the previous years. So many, uh, there's a lot of time dedicated to review at, in the fall, which is fine. But it's really a ripe time to nurture a literacy habit with children because time is so open-ended for many of them, and they have um, space to really just sit and read. And if not in the summer, when will they have time to read just for fun, you know, outside of homework? They, they have time for that in the school year, I'm sure, but this is sort of this open-ended time where we want them to have that opportunity. And, you know, the more students read, the more vocabulary they're exposed to, mm-hmm. the more opportunities to think critically they're exposed to. And then when they're in school, that that's more words that they now know. So when they come to a word they don't know, it's supported by other words that they do know, and they're able to mm-hmm. understand that new word. Um, over 30 years ago, uh, a researcher that's sort of my personal guru in reading, Keith Stanovich, coined the phrase the Matthew effect. And it's based on uh, one of the stories in the book of Matthew in the Bible, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Mm. And he uh, attributed this or, or coined this phrase in terms of literacy development, and especially in the area of vocabulary growth for children. who Children who read a lot are exposed to more words. And so when they have other books that they're reading and they see words they don't know, they are more likely to figure them out from context because they know so many more words. So now that's adding to their repertoire of words that they know. And as they go through the elementary years, they know hundreds of thousands of words more than a student who chooses not to read. Wow. And that's numerically the difference? Yes, yes, right. Wow. And so as the years go by... The student that, and that's the rich getting richer. And so the poor getting poorer, that's the student that maybe struggled reading, learning to read, so now doesn't see this as something they want to do, as any of us would, right? Anything we struggle with, we don't say, that's my hobby. (laughs) So they're not going to choose to read. And so now they're exposed to fewer words. And so when they are assigned to read, it just reminds them of how much they struggle and they're going to have a harder time figuring out more unknown words and they'll have fewer words in their repertoire to build off of. And so they're going to choose that less and less. And while the the rich are getting richer, Mm. the poor are getting poorer and that gap widens as the years go on. Wow. That's a heartbreaking scenario. Yes. So the summer is a wonderful time to develop a reading habit. And I really encourage families, not parents saying two children, but the entire family to develop a reading habit. So, you know, everyone has a book that they're reading and we talk about it and our kids see us as parents or caregivers or grandparents with books, as teachers with a book on our desk that we're reading on our own. Hmm. And so when it's that time um, at home, you might have what I call book time. And it's, I, I tell people to start this with kids even as early as four years old, you know, when they're starting to grow out of nap time. Hmm. And the summer is perfect because they're home. They're getting tired, they're, they're overheated, there's been a lot of activity. And so now it's, we're all going to find a couple of books and a snack and a cozy spot to read on our own, and we're just going to sit and read. And that includes the caregivers that are home, so that they see that this is 
something we all do, and it develops that habit. And it also helps build their stamina. As you mentioned earlier, young, you know, when kids are sort of wanting to do other things and aren't interested. Well, this helps develop that stamina because you can slowly increase that book time as mm. they seem to be more involved in their books and talk about what you've read and um, so that it kind of creates that that habit. And so that is a way to make it something that they might choose to do because it's just that habit that we've developed over time in our own home. Right. When you were kind of spelling out the kind of things you wanted to explore today, you talked about uh, maintaining literacy habits or starting literacy habits. Right. And I suppose that, that that's one two, of the ways. Yeah, yeah. And there's, but that's two different mm-hmm. things we're talking about. In some cases, there's already uh, this love of reading mm-hmm. that sometimes maybe goes away when baseball and other things right. intrude in the summer yeah. months. Uh, but the other thing is when those habits are not in place, uh, are you kind of suggesting it's never too late to start? It's never too late, right. Uh, another thing to do is anytime you're going somewhere, the last thing you say is you're headed out the door, everyone have their book. So that way it's just what we do. It's that habit. And that that goes to anytime you're going somewhere where you know there's going to be waiting at the doctor's or dentist's office, in a restaurant, anything like that, an appointment you have that you have to bring your children with you um, and they're going to be sitting there to vacations and car trips and bring a bag of books. So it's just that habit. Summer is perfect, actually, for developing a habit of using your own public library. Mm. Right? They all have summer reading programs, weekly check-ins. So if you are if you have your kids go there with you to the library, everyone checks in, and they, there's usually little incentives the librarians have for kids each week to see if you met your goal and Mm. uh, that sort of thing. And then while we're here, we'll check out more books so that we can read for next week's goal. And just having that check-in time is another great way to build in that habit. So we're not talking about running out and, like I said earlier, buying the latest workbook or sitting down and making flashcards. It's just natural ways that we actually engage with text and just bringing our kids in on that. Right. When it comes to, for instance, reading, you've, you've, what you've described mostly right now sounds like everybody reading a book. Yes. Like everybody right. reading their own book. For a moment, let's talk about the the scenario of of a child being read to, sure. of reading to a child. Um, is that kind of, in a sense, exactly the same thing? Are they kind of interchangeable activities, or do you need to make sure that you're doing some of both? Right. Uh, how how should that be stirred into the mix? Well, reading to children is very important because that's their opportunity to hear the language come alive from a young age. And even as they're already readers, to continue that because they're hearing an expert reader Mm. read and how they approach a text and how they use expression and their fluency. And so it's modeling that for them. So, yes, that's very important to maintain even as they're readers themselves. It also creates this amazing community between the caregiver and the child to say, that's just like what happened to Wilbur in Charlotte's Web. Remember that? (laughs) And you have that together that you wouldn't have otherwise. So, you know, if the child's just reading that on their own, you won't have that experience as much. So it's just that sense of creating community around literacy as well and, and conveying to your children, you're a reader 
and you're part of the literacy club mm. kind of thing, um, which is another phrase I like to use from Frank Smith, another researcher. But so reading to children is very important. And again, from a young age, obviously, we usually envision reading to children when they're before they can read themselves. Right. So that happens probably most often. Uh, I even encourage, I should say, you know, books on pregnancy when they say what to pack for the hospital, pack a book. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. Right. From the beginning. So th- just having them hear your voice and hear that that rhythmic uh, tone that a book can procure out of you. But it exposes children to wonderful language. And as they're beginning readers, it's great to have them read to you to practice, hmm. but they they should still hear you reading books that they have the listening vocabulary for, the listening comprehension for, but not the ability themselves to read yet. And so it's it's good for that to continue. So yeah, it's very important to carve out time. The most popular is at bedtime. That's the best time to, that everyone sort of seems to have time together. No one's trying to get dinner ready or <laughs> laundry done. Um, but any other time, if if you are instigating book time with older kids and you have younger children that need you to be there with them reading to them, that's a great time to do that. But um, any time that you have that moment with them, oh, you know, it'll be another 20 minutes before dinner is ready. You know, well, if you're you're already at the table, let's look at this book, Mm. right? So that kind of thing. So any moment you can grab for that. But it's also important to keep books accessible in the home. So... It, not just on the children's bookshelf in their bedroom, but if you have a place in a family room where you could have their books in a basket so that whenever there's downtime, they're kind of there. And, mm. it, and it also conveys, this is what we value. This is important. So if you're looking for something to do, this is another choice you have. It's not just the last resort or, or something we reserve for bedtime. Right. It was interesting when you used the term uh, expert reader because yes. you know, probably a lot of people would never consider themselves right. the, an expert reader or the expert reader in the in the room. But, of course, yeah. particularly when you're reading to a five-year-old or right. a seven-year-old or whatever, you're you are the expert. The ex- right, exactly. <laughs> what else would you have the expert reader do in terms of enriching that yes. experience beyond just reading the book. Absolutely. So, you know, the thing, as I mentioned earlier, reading is a skill. That means that it's in everything we do. In fact, we don't realize that we're doing it. We just are always doing it. Mm -hmm. So it involves intentionality on our part to nurture that skill with young children. And one of the ways that I even did this as a parent of young children was with recipes. So let's make brownies. And I, instead of making it and, and having them help with the making of it only, I'd physically pull out the recipe, even if I knew it. Let's look, okay, what do we need first? Oh, we need flour, half a cup of flour. So, so they are reading the recipe. Yes, or you're dragging your finger under the words with them and saying, oh, it says here, mix together. Okay, so so you're implying that if... I need to know this skill if I want to know how to make these brownies or whatever you're making. Ah. Right. So any how-to activity, pull out the directions. A game. Well, let's figure out how to play the game first. Let's read the directions. And so just those moments of intentionality are modeling for our children that this is an important skill. So when we're learning letter-sound relationships, there's a reason for Mm. that, you know. 
So it's just, yeah, just being intentional. And, and take and that intentionality, though, if you notice, these are authentic moments. It's not, okay, let's get out this workbook and we're going to read this sample paragraph together and then answer these questions. That has nothing to do with nothing real life. Nothing to do with real life. So if we're going to play this board game, we need to know how. Or if we're going to cook this recipe, let's read to find out. Oh, we want to go fishing? Let's... Let's look up online, you know, the best time of year to go or what what equipment we need. Real world reasons to read and bringing our kids in. That's that intentional piece. Just not doing it ourselves and saying, okay, I found out what we need. Let's go do it. Making them a part of that. Interesting. I'm reminded a little bit of uh, the matter of intentionality. Uh, I have nieces who are homeschooled who turned out wonderfully. I mean, they've gone to college and been just done brilliantly. But I remember years and years ago when I was a little concerned about how this was going to work out, I didn't know a lot about homeschooling. I remember one of the things was I would often call and uh, and then ask to talk to them. And, and one of my questions taught me, and, and, and what did you do for school today, even right. though it was homeschooling? Sure. And in many cases, I mean, it felt like 90% of the time, they would say, "Oh, we didn't have school today," uh, and but in fact they did. I mean, because they, they, they right, they went on a little field trip of some kind mm-hmm. or another, or they did something that was just so fun that it didn't feel like school. And I don't, I'm not saying that was terrible, but but in a sense, we're talking about lacking intentionality. That 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 there's something to be said about. Now we're going to go do this, and we're going to do it because it's important, and right. we're, and we're not just doing it because it's fun, but we're right. doing it because. We're about to learn something, yeah. and it's important to learn things. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's, in a sense, what you're talking about here, too, as well, although not in an artificial way that's kind of appliqued to the surface of your life, but, right. but having it spring out of life itself. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's the key, is that they're seeing that, you know, mom's a reader, dad's a reader. They use this skill when they're doing X, when they're doing this activity. And so now you're saying to your child, you're treating them as a reader, when I, uh, I used to actually, for a while, I did work in the, my local public library in the children's department, and parents would ask me, my child's five and just not really um, learning to read well yet. What do I do? And I, the first thing I would say is treat your child like a reader. Call them a reader. Say, read this to me. You have a birthday card from grandma? Oh, what does it say? Mm. Let's read it together, right? Uh, so just all those little everyday moments and um, if you're going to the grocery store before you go, you know, now with phones, it's so much easier if you're going to make a list to just type it on your phone, right? But don't, but use pencil and paper mm. and sit down at the table. And if your child's around, say, okay, what kind of snacks did you want mom or dad to get today um, at the store? We're going to go to the store and get a couple things. And, you know, make the list and, and say what you're writing as you're writing it in front of them. And then as you're getting ready to leave, oh, I forgot we need milk. Can you put milk at the end of the list? Mm. And even if all they do is make a little M or a squiggle, whatever age they are, or if they're older and they just say M-I-K, they don't hear that little (laughs) L. Uh, Whatever their ability is, you take, okay, thanks, great, thank you so much. And you, (laughs) right, so now they're a reader and writer. They're contributing and they're helping out. So these are all subtle ways that we're engaging them, not from everything from just sitting down and reading a book to the skill of reading and writing like in milk in the process and getting them to see themselves in that role so that as they move into their school age years, if that's with young children, they're, they're 
ready to learn with pencil and paper in school and it it's makes sense to them that they understand they've seen these letters they've played around with them and they know what they're there for fantastic we're speaking with Jackie Easley from the faculty of Carthage College associate professor of education and she's talking about some ways in which uh, parents and other people who care about uh, young children can uh, can fold in a sense exercises for for literacy uh, into everyday life through the summer months in particular because that's often when we allow uh, matters of literacy to kind of go by the wayside a little bit. And that can be uh, very counterproductive for a young person. I mean, they start the school year then, in a sense, maybe having lost some ground from where they were. And uh, and they're losing out on, on, on just plain old fun as right. well when, yeah. when, when this gets kind of crowded off the... the crowded off the map during the the kind of the chaos uh, and and or laziness of the summer months. We've been mostly talking about at home the things that can be uh, done for enhancing literacy. I know you have also some ideas about when we're out and about uh, sure. during and that's certainly a big part of the summer as as well. What are some uh, simple ways in which literacy can be enhanced? Sure. So anytime uh, any sort of family field trip activity, uh, going to the zoo, going you know on a nature trail, anything like that, and we always are taking pictures on our phone, right, to capture the moment. Maybe posting it on social media about fun things we did. Well, maybe instead uh, email those pictures to yourself and print them up, and then you can make a little booklet of our day where the child dictates what was happening in that picture, and you write as they're dictating it, uh-huh. and you staple it together into a little booklet, and that's something you read at bedtime that night. And and as that becomes a child's favorite book, they're going to start recognizing their own name in print, mm. uh, other sight words we call, words you know by sight without having to sound out, juicy words, really interesting vocabulary words that you might use to describe something. So anything like that um, is easy to do. But let's say you're out and about running errands like the grocery store. And that to me is sort of a treasure trove of literacy because (laughs) if you think of it, right, all the labels, uh, what we call environmental print, print that you know from the context of its environment as opposed to seeing it typed on a page. So cereal box labels that they have their favorite cereal and they know it by sight because they know the packaging. Right, they see Toucan Sam right? there or, yes. or Tony the and Tiger. And so, <laughs> you know, they you say if you're going down the cereal, oh, pick which is point which one was your cereal again? Where's your cereal at? Uh, if they're walking on their own, they're not sitting in the car, can you go get your cereal and say, okay, what does that say on there? Are you sure that's the, you know, yeah, because it's toucan, but what does it say, right? Mm. You know, and, and point out the words to them. Uh, okay, thanks, put that in the cart. Or uh, we need, you know, that milk, go get the milk and see where you can find the words. And just, so all that environmental print. But even uh, for very young children, one of the key indicators of, successful learning of letter-sound relationships is when children enter school having understood sounds and how to manipulate them in words. Mm. And we call that phonemic awareness. So phonemes are the smallest unit of sound in a word. So when they're aware of the sounds in words, not necessarily the letter that goes with the sound, just the sounds. And so as a parent, you're in the fresh produce, pears, pear, we need pears. What's the first sound you hear in pear? Not the letter. Mm. Puh. Right. Puh. Pear. <laughs> Let's go get pears. Just fun like this, keeping them, and it keeps them entertained. Maybe they're sure. not going to be too impatient with you, but um, you're pointing out different sounds. What is the last sound you hear in a word? 
Um, you know, if, if uh, grape, you know, what do we hear at the beginning of grape? Mm. And, you know, grr, right? So if we take <laughs> grr out and we put a t there, what word would that be? Uh. T- tape. And so they're manipulating sounds. And research has shown that kids that have a highly developed sense of phonemic awareness, when it comes to pencil and paper and learning letter-sound relationships, that transition is much smoother than hmm. kids that haven't had a lot of that experience. So just little things like that where we're, you know, we don't have to sit down with a book. We can just be out and about and pointing out words. Wow. And I never would have thought of the grocery store as a treasure trove yes, for literacy uh, enrichment, but it think of course about it. is. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Think no, about all amazing. the opportunities that are there. Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. It makes me wish I had kids. <laughs> I feel like that, that the, the every trip to the grocery store right. could be keeps them entertained. Um, You're keeping them kind of, you know, you can get your work done and what you need to do. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I know that another of the articles that you wrote for the Kenosha News uh was about a matter that I think we've already touched on a little bit, uh, in a sense kind of in inadvertently, and that's the idea of trying to fold really creative exercises, creative expression into uh, all of this. Tell us more about some of those possibilities. Sure. I mean, everything from music, you know, playing music at home and just doing, making up silly dances with kids. But then in terms of literacy, uh, word patterns, there's patterns Mm. everywhere. Math patterns, word patterns, the patterns of raindrops on a window pane, right? There's just patterns everywhere in life. So having them repeat a pattern that you, you know, you clap twice, snap twice, tap your knees twice, and then have them join in when they know the pattern mm. to the beat of the music. Just little things like that that are fun. Um, or having them draw a picture of an outing you had instead of using photos. Have them draw a picture of their favorite activity they did that day and then dictating a sentence to you about what that picture is about and then you you write it down for them. Um, Anything like that. So anything that has to do with getting them to be creative. Sidewalk chalk is a wonderful opportunity. They can draw a scene from their favorite book. Hmm. They can start acting it out. Dress up clothes in the house, having those available, Hmm. having them act out different scenes from from books or from movies. Because when they're acting things out, now if you think in terms of reading comprehension, one of the most basic abilities of reading skills and reading comprehension is sequencing events. And that's what they're doing. First this happened in the story, then that, and then this is how it was resolved, right? So having them do that and pointing that out to them, well, what happened for? Well, now what will happen next? And using sequential words like first, next, last, then. Mm gets them using some of that basic understanding as well. Um, And it also engages them in creative thinking. You know, well, what could happen next? You know, well, that's what happened in the movie or in the story. What would you have done differently? And get them to kind of uh, draw a different scene or act out a different scene. So anything like that. Um, Sidewalk chalk is really a lot of fun, actually, for Hmm. young kids because they can be big, bold, beautiful pictures on the sidewalk that they create or that you can say, you know, we just read um, Olivia, a picture book, and so draw a picture of her dancing, you know, so you can give them ideas as well to get them thinking. Draw a picture of something of one of her friends that she would like to be with or, Mm. you know, that kind of thing. So it it really is just limited to our own imagination. Mm -hmm. Um, And the arts can also be interpretive. So looking at illustrations in picture books why do you think the illustrator put 
use this color. What does this color make you feel mm. like? And, you know, nothing's an accident. Everything's done on, intentionally in a picture book, in any book. And so what is the illustrator trying to say to us here? Or what do you think will happen next based on the illustration? How do you know? Point, you know, and talk about it that way. So just e- even as a, in terms of appreciation of art, as much as creating art, you can integrate that. I like that. What is the correlation between a child who loves to read and a child that loves to write? I mean, are those mm. two activities, in a sense, very naturally paired or not necessarily? Uh, I would say they typically would be naturally paired. So um, from a teaching standpoint, I often tell my students who are going to be teachers, we want our students to read like writers and write like readers. Mm. And in doing that, what we're saying is when you're reading like a writer, you're saying, oh, superfluous, what an excellent word, right? (laughs) I want to use that word in my story and maybe keep Mm. a logbook of interesting quotes or words. And that's reading like a writer. Mm. Uh, writing like a reader is writing with consideration for your audience. Hmm. So what would my reader, what will help my reader to predict next what's going to happen? Or how can I write this in a way that my reader doesn't feel confused? Hmm. And so um, when we have our kids reading books, we should be talking about, isn't that a unique word that the author used? I'd like that word. Let's remember that word. Or, you know, I, I'd like to use that. And getting them to think about the author's craft and not just receiving it, but actually thinking about how I can use this in my own compositions later Hmm. is an interesting way. So you'll often, if someone's drawn to writing, uh, typically it's because they've enjoyed reading so much Hmm. that they want to contribute to that. So typically you would see that go hand in hand. If you ever go hear an author speak, uh, if you ever, uh, that's one of the things that I'd love to do is go to authors, especially children's authors. And one of the number one questions is, uh, usually in the audience, someone will ask, I want to become a writer too. What would you recommend? And the number one recommendation is always read a lot. Mm. Because you can't be a good writer if you haven't read a lot already. Yeah, that's very true. I believe that. Um, What would your advice be for parents in terms of choosing books for young children? Mm. Or is it just as well to just leave the choice to them if you drop them off at Barnes and Noble and then just peruse <laughs> the shelves of whatever sure. seems to be the right section of the store for them or or is that something where you advise parents to be kind of a guiding hand and if so what should they be thinking about that's a good question and it's very overwhelming as a parent you go into a Barnes and Noble and where do you even start so um one of the things I always recommend is to know good authors, because if you know a good mm. author, then when what they write, you could recommend to your child, oh, this is written by Tommy DePaula, and you liked his, his books, so let's try this one, right? Uh, the problem there is that we don't know authors as parents. We, this mm. isn't our field. And, and there's so many books being written and published for children right now that it's hard to keep up, even with people who do know. So I actually would recommend getting to know your librarian and just asking the librarian. And after a while, you'll, you'll know good titles. Also pay attention when you're, during the school year when your children bring home book order forms. Even if you're not going to order any, just 
it gives you a sense of what's out there for that age level and who seems to be a popular author or what your child seems to talk about a lot. Teachers' recommendations as well. Um, those are great ways to kind of stay on top of it by having uh, the teachers recommend. When I was teaching, I would, beginning of the summer, send home a bookmark, and on one side would be fun things they could do that, you know, uh, if I knew what was going on in the area, different mm-hmm. special museum exhibits that were coming, different events, the library book club I mentioned, art exhibits, uh, s- special camps at park districts or forest preserves. I'd put that on the front of fun things to do. And then on the back, great books to read for the summer that I would recommend. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, using that as a starting point. The other thing that we really haven't talked much about here yet today that kind of gets short shrift a lot is informational books. Oh. And young kids, they have interests. Uh, they might say they want to read about insects or uh, construction sites more than I really like Tommy DePaula's books, right? So um, thankfully, most libraries, they they have, under the Dewey Decimal System, interest-level books by the same topic are organized together. So once you know where they're at, you can keep going back there. To the dinosaur books yeah, or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. And so we don't want to forget that. Um, I'll often take a survey of my college students who are preparing to be teachers and ask at the beginning of the year, how many of you would consider yourselves a reader? And usually more girls than boys will raise their hand. And so then I'll say to the boys, so you don't read? Well, I mean, I read, you know, some might say Sports Illustrated or articles online. or the, Well, then why don't you see yourself as a reader? And they just sort of look at me. And, and the reason that I have found to be true, that I can't say uniformly is true, but something worth mulling over, is that typically the books read in class are chapter books or uh, fiction storybooks, right? And so unless you like that, you're not going to read that. And so when you do read about information, you think, well, I just read this because I like it, but I'm really not a reader. And so we need to show our kids that actually informational books are really important and take more time to read those at bedtime too with our kids. You know, it's interesting how often that distinction gets made. Even when, I mean, so often when you read an article on great books to read this summer, it will be a list entirely of fiction, fiction. Mm-hmm. as as though that's what that's the right. the books you what read in poetry? the summer. Right. What about poetry? What about books about music? Right. Or favorite I mean, musicians? Yeah, I'm a big nonfiction person, and and that always irks me a right. lot. Uh, it's it's like it, it's like it's two different kinds of reading, yeah. and it is. It is. Yeah, yeah, and so it. it you know, we need to make time for that and be and remember that as caregivers of children over the summer that maybe they're just going to want to read about spiders. Right. And and let's get books on spiders. Absolutely. And talk about it. You'd be you'd be amazed how much you can learn from those books as an adult. <laughs> Absolutely. Nothing <laughs> so wrong with just, learning. Right. Exactly. So it's just important to keep that in mind. Well, I really appreciate so much of what you have shared today. And it reminds me of a very wise words from a woman named Jackie Drummer, who is a Carthage mm-hmm. grad and a school teacher for many years. And extensively works with gifted and talented students. She's largely retired now, but still does some of that. But one of Jackie's things that she loved to say to her students was, it's fun to be smart. It's fun to be smart. And uh, 
I mean, and it's especially important for, uh, you know, certain young people who might think that <laughs> being smart is a drag or being smart is boring. Mm-hmm. No, being no. smart is wonderful. Being smart is, and, and everybody has the capacity of being smart to everybody. some extent. And a lot of what you've been talking about today points to that. So Absolutely. I really appreciate uh, everything that you have shared today. Uh, Jackie Easley, Dean for the Division of Professional Studies and Associate Professor of Education at Carthage. Thank you so much for this really enjoyable uh, program. I've really enjoyed this. Well, wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. I've enjoyed it as well.